0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics on this Tuesday evening. I appreciate your time, regardless of how much you want to give to us this evening. Uh, we, we we always appreciate you being here with us. Where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So thank you for being with us here on the program, and man, do we have a ton, and I mean a ton to cover. There is so much news today, but we are going to get through as much of it as humanly possible, and a lot of it's local news. We actually have some big national news we need to get to, but as always, local news does take top priority here at Tactics. So one of the biggest news stories, and it's interesting because I've not seen a ton of news coverage on it and i think that's because a it's it's so new and there's not a lot of details and there's uh, not a lot of, of there's not a lot to be written about this so far because we don't have a lot of details i'm not even going to do that much commentary on it i just thought it was important to let y'all know uh so this is going to be one of those rare times where i don't really give a whole lot of my own opinion i'm just basically giving you the details of the story representative Will Mukes was arrested for theft last week uh af- unfortunately after We did the show, so we didn't have a chance to cover this on Thursday, but he is accused of stealing $2,500 from Weiss Commercial Flooring Incorporated over the span of about two years. And so with a dollar amount that, that is equal in this size, that would actually make it a first degree theft of property, which in the state of Alabama classifies as a Class B felony. So this is a very, very serious allegation, if it does indeed turn out to be true. There's not a lot of details on it. Apparently, there has been some preliminary investigative work that at least got them to the point to where they said, okay, there's probable cause here, so we need to go ahead and issue a- an arrest warrant. This is coming via Montgomery County District Attorney Daryl Bailey, who said, and I quote, After countless hours of investigation, which consisted of witness interviews, obtaining bank records, and gathering other evidence, a decision was made by myself and prosecutors in my office, along with these investigators, that probable cause existed that a crime had been committed. So, that's what got them to the level, apparently, whatever evidence they have, whatever you know, information that they were able to gather. They didn't get enough together to go, okay, this guy's definitely guilty, but they got enough together to go, okay, there's probable cause here. This merits further investigation and we're going to have to be able to bring this before a court. So we're going to go ahead and issue an arrest warrant. Now, what the details are, nobody knows yet. Nobody has reported on that. Nobody really has any idea whatever it is that they have on Representative Will Dismukes. And, you know, just a a personal disclaimer here, I make it a point to keep elected officials at least at arm's length, even the ones that I have a really good relationship with. And with Will Dismukes, he is probably the person, at least currently, occupying an elected office in the state of Alabama that I have the closest relationship with, but it's still pretty distant. I mean, I, I know Will. I like him. He and I tend to agree on a lot of things. He's one of the most conservative members of the House of Representatives in Alabama. He is my representative from District 88. And so in a lot of ways, this is something that I really hope isn't true because every interaction that I've had with Will so far has led me to believe that he's an honest person, a good guy, and I I intend to extend to him the benefit of the doubt, both as a friend and also as somebody... Well, I don't even know if I would call us friends. We're definitely... Uh, friendly towards one another, but I don't know that we would, you know, we don't like hang out or anything on our personal time. But anyway, uh, when it comes to Will, you know, he's always seemed like somebody that was very earnest, somebody that was a trustworthy person. And that's the reason that I voted for him in the election. He's one of the most likable members of the House of Representatives. He's one of the very few that, that keeps in touch with me on a regular basis to let me know the kind of stuff that is going on in the state house and I commend him for that. But if this turns out to be true, this is really bad. I believe in innocent until proven guilty. And I would extend that even to people that I don't like it. And, and by the way, have before that when allegations crop up about a Democrat or somebody that I just personally don't like, I try to maintain innocent until proven guilty. But If this turns out to be true, this is really bad. Uh, I I maintained when all of this started just to, you know, because he's been in the news lately. He was actually on my show just recently because of a controversy that cropped up with him celebrating the birthday of General Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Confederate general, many of whom speculate was actually the founder or at least one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan Uh, there's a lot of speculation surrounding that, that he was at the very least one of the early leaders of the clan and uh, was perceived to be, you know, the main leader even for a while. Um, Even, you know, whether or not he was actually a founder or not. Uh, I maintained that those actions were at the very least unwise. I don't think that you could go and say that they were necessarily wrong. I think that it was politically incredibly stupid And as I've said before, when it comes to things like, uh, you know, displaying the Confederate flag, I think that that's an unwise thing to do. I can't go all the way to immoral because it does mean different things to different people. And a lot of people don't see it as a symbol of of racism or anything like that. You can go back and watch my commentary on that. But it seems as though this is completely separate from this on the surface. But I do find it awful fishy. I'm not saying that this automatically means that Will is innocent. This whole thing is cooked up, but I find it awful suspicious that right in the middle of when the guy was embroiled in a national controversy that reached the level of controversy of national news. And this came largely because he just happened to be at this particular celebration of a Confederate general that just, again, happened to be, because it just, that's the way the days worked out. The man can't change the date of his birthday. Um, it just happened to be on the day of John Lewis, or the the same weekend of John Lewis's internment, a civil rights leader. And that's the reason that this story reached national news. I find it a little suspicious that all of this came to a head right as all of that was happening. It just seems like a, an awful big coincidence. Now, maybe it is a coincidence. And according to the AL.com article that I was reading and getting my information from, it says that these charges, these complaints, were filed back in May which granted will was kind of in a little bit of a controversy there because there were a lot of people mad at him for talking about the state flag of Mississippi and commenting how the the again it's not even the Confederate flag the the uh battle flag of Virginia which is the original square version of what people usually refer to as the rebel flag nowadays uh the fir- the battle flag of the first regiment of Virginia is actually part of Mississippi State flag. Wildis Muke said that it should stay the way that it is. He and I actually talked about that on the air a couple weeks ago when he was on my show. Um, I, I tended to not agree with him on that stance, but regardless, that was still going on back when all of this started uh, taking place. And so because of that, I just, I find it odd that four years after the fact, after all of this would have been over, Will's been a a business owner himself that has owned his own company and hasn't worked for this particular company, Weiss Commercial Flooring Incorporated, for about four years, and it's just now coming to a head? Maybe it's a coincidence. It certainly doesn't prove Dismuke's innocence. But I do find that fishy. my, My spider senses are tingling here, that this may be something that is made up out of whole cloth. It's not quite as bad or quite as obvious as like the, the junk that they cooked up on Roy Moore or anything like that, but it, it doesn't pass the smell test, at least not yet. Now, now, maybe it is just a massive coincidence. I don't know. But here's the bottom line, and I want to get this out there as soon as possible, Partially because I want to make sure that I'm holding myself to the same standard and that I'm accountable so that I can't backtrack on this later unless I have a very good reason or can rationalize doing so uh, with with a very, very good reason. If it turns out that this is correct, I don't see any reason. I I can't even come up with a scenario in my head to where Will Dismuke should not resign. Now, I don't know if there is a law that would suggest that he has to resign if he is found guilty of a felony while in office, that may several states have things like that on the books for their state reps. I don't know if Alabama does or not. But with this, even if it turns out that that's not a requirement, like he's not legally required to do so, all he would have to do is pay back damages with interest or something like that, even if that takes place and he can pay his debt to society, that of course should happen because if he's guilty, then he needs to Uh, recompense those whom he has wronged for doing so. He has a debt to pay to society for that kind of theft. But regardless, even though I like him, even though I think he's one of the most conservative members of Congress, if he is guilty, he should step down. Full stop. If he is guilty of this, he has broken the public trust, even though this is seemingly, based on all the details that we have now, completely unconnected. He wasn't even holding office when that took place. This is something that I think that Dismukes should step down, because this is something that should have been out in the open, and if it turns out that any of this is true, that means he can no longer be trusted, and the pretenses, the suppositions by people and voters like me about him and about his character when we cast our vote can no longer be trusted. That has changed now. And so, it would be the honorable thing to do for him to step down, if found guilty. If he goes through the legal process and he's innocent, no action should take place, if you're asking me. But either way, this is the thing about politics. Regardless of whether it's a person that we like or we don't like, that politically agrees with us or doesn't, whether their agenda agenda happens to line up with our own, the policies that they like happen to be the policies that we like, doesn't matter. Nobody is above the law, period. There doesn't need to be a special classification of laws that apply to certain people and not other people. Unfortunately, we live in a country where there are times where that is a reality. The handling of the FBI with the Hillary Clinton investigation and the handling of the Trump impeachment, all of those things, suggest that there is certainly quite a few double standards, unfortunately, in our legal system. But that would not justify us looking the other way when somebody that we like or happen to agree with breaks the law. Everyone must be held to account. That's the way that this country is supposed to function. Now, speaking of other state politics, Tommy Tuberville, who is, of course, the candidate to replace Senator Doug Jones in the Senate race, he's now the Republican candidate since beating Jeff Sessions, He made a statement about the $600 employment benefits being too much, saying that it should be reduced somehow, that it would encourage people, which, by the way, this has shown to be the case, that it encourages people not to work because they can essentially make the same amount of money or more just sitting at home doing nothing when they could be working. By the way, I don't think that it is a coincidence. Have you noticed how a lot of the corona stuff when it comes to having businesses shut down and and all the other stuff, all the other trappings that goes with it. Have you noticed that a lot of that desire to keep everything shut down has died since July 31st when those benefits ran out? I don't think that's a mistake. When you incentivize people not to work, people are going to not work. It's a fact of human nature. Labor is pain. And if humans can figure out a way to avoid labor and still stave off misery, you know, keep food on the table, keep their kids fed, keep clothes on their backs, keep the debt collectors off your back, if you can do that, and you don't have to work for it, well, then why would you want that to go away? And so, since July 31st, we have seen a much larger groundswell and, and of people of, of many different political backgrounds. I don't think that it is a coincidence that that has been greatly accelerated since July the 31st when those benefits went away. Now, maybe maybe that's not all of it, but I think that it would be foolish to think that that is not a significant contributing factor. But that being said, just looking at all of this, Tommy Tuberville, because that's the issue on its head— When Tommy Tuberville essentially said something akin to that, probably a little less eloquently, but when Tommy Tuberville said something akin to that, immediately the media, the leftist media here in Alabama, pounced on him, all the people on the left pounced on him, and their line of attack was, yeah, but Tommy Tuberville is a guy that got $5 million for quitting, talking about his contract with Auburn, that, that he essentially walked away and they bought him out of his contract, which is, you know, accurate, what does that have to do with whether or not 600 is the appropriate amount of employment? Is it too much? This is a textbook case of an ad hominem attack. And Kyle Whitmire over at AL.com, he actually wrote an entire article based around this premise. Essentially, it was an entire AL.com article filled with literally nothing but ad hominem attacks saying that Tommy Tuberville and the point that he was making is incorrect because he is a person that got $5 million for walking away and Auburn University paying him $5 million to walk away. That he was getting that for not working. But these two things are not connected to one another. See, whether or not Tommy Tuberville is right has nothing to do with him getting $5 million. But let's pretend just for a second that somehow it is. You see, that contract and the buyout that he got for walking away is not based off of the work he did after he left. It's based on the work before the contract, before the buyout took place. He obtained the value of that contract long before the decision was made to walk away. And the reason that he did is because his competency as a football coach said whether it was correct or not, but it said at the time when the contract was signed to the people at Auburn University that this person is worth X. Now, you can make the argument that we way overemphasize football or that football coaches are paid too much. Those are all relevant arguments to their own subject, but they have nothing to do with whether or not unemployment benefits are too much or too little. They are in absolutely no way connected to one another. And all they are doing here is trying to say, well, Tommy Tuberville had a big contract and I don't understand why he's qualified to talk on this. That's an attack towards the person, not the argument. And this is just a debate tip from somebody who you know, has some expertise in debate. Normally, maybe there are some exceptions, but about 99% of the time, when somebody launches into an ad hominem attack, it's because they cannot attack the argument on its own merits. Usually, that is the last arrow in the quiver. And I was not a huge Tommy Tupperville fan, I was pulling for Jeff Sessions, and he was like my last pick in the primary. So I'm not saying this because I'm just absolutely in love with Tommy Tuberville. But whether or not he was right has nothing to do with how much money he makes or how much money he got in buyouts from contracts. He could be completely right or completely wrong has nothing to do with that. And usually the ad hominem attack is a last desperate plea from someone that has not the intellectual capacity to do anything else. Now, I'm not saying that Kyle Whitmire is a stupid person, but I'm saying that he dug down into his quiver and didn't have anything there, so he was like, yep, ad hominem attack is the only line of attack I've got left. He couldn't attack it on its merits, so he had to attack the person making the argument rather than the argument itself, because $600 is not, that is going to incentivize necessarily people to not have to work. I wasn't even making two-thirds of that at my radio job at one point. Actually, I'm still not, come to think of it, but that's really neither here nor there. Um, the, the point in all of that is that you cannot attack the person and act like you've defeated the argument. That's simply not the case. Now, uh, sort of in connection to this, because we do have an update on the the unemployment benefits themselves, Donald Trump has actually signed an executive order to continue unemployment benefits at $400 instead of $600. Now, that still is, in my opinion, incentivizing people not to work, but, you know, that's where we are right now. Uh, This executive order also includes a deferment on student loan interest. So the way that it works is it's not a forgiving of student loan, but it is a deferral on the interest. So in other words, if uh, you have a unsubsidized, well, I guess it would be subsidized or unsubsidized. Uh, You could have a student loan that has an interest rate. That interest rate is going to be zero until further notice. And then finally, this executive order also had a payroll tax holiday. So I actually like the payroll tax holiday. And even though I'm not thrilled, well, I'm kind of neutral on the student loan deferment, at least until further notice, because I can see both arguments on that one. Now, I don't think the federal government should in any way be involved in student loans, but they already are. Ergo, I can at least see the rationale in, okay, if we're already involved in the student loan process, we might as well just at least not have them acquire student debt and continue on that path, at least for the time being until the economy is back up and running. Uh, I I can at least see the argument for deferring that. The, The $400 one... Uh, that is an improvement over the $600, but again, that's not really the federal government's job. The state should be ponying up. I also do find it hilarious that a lot of states, including there was a back and forth between President Trump and Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, where they were essentially, Cuomo was complaining, saying that Trump uh, was suggesting that the states pony up some of that money. Well, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? especially if you've got an awful lot of blue states that are shutting down the entire economy, but then saying, but we want, the federal, we want the federal government, not us, to bail us out and keep everybody afloat, well, that would, kind of like the unemployment benefits themselves, that would incentivize the states to continue to keep it shut down and not produce, all the while just standing there waiting for a handout from the federal government. This is part of the reason that the states should be the ones handling this and they should be handling 100% of it. This should not be something that the federal government has to get involved in at least on this particular portion of the coronavirus response because that would incentivize the states to say oh yeah, maybe we should get people back to work because we're running out of money. They couldn't stay in this holding pattern indefinitely. That way. And so I think that that actually is a wise policy. But here's the problem with all of that. Doesn't matter how good the policy is, doesn't matter how much I like it. I mean, I don't understand why we have a payroll tax in the first place. It should be gotten rid of completely. I don't just want a payroll tax holiday. I want there to be a payroll tax repeal. So I really, really like that. Doesn't matter. It's completely unconstitutional. What President Trump did here. Is completely subvert and go around the Constitution in order to do it. Because Congress is fighting back and forth as to whether or not they're going to act on that. And Trump gets fed up with it and says, screw it, I'm just going to be Congress. I'm just going to completely ignore Article 1 and 2 of the Constitution, completely ignore the separation of powers. I am going to act with impunity on my own. And you got, and basically dared them to try to stop him on this. And the thing is, it's, very, very reminiscent of DACA. You remember the the Dreamers and the legislation that President Trump pushed through where Congress fought back and forth on this for several months, and then finally Obama said, you know what, I have said, I don't know, like 27 times that I don't have the authority to act, that I'm not a dictator, that I can't just, with a wave of my hand say, no, you're just not going to deport anybody under a certain age, you're not going to deport the DREAMers, and then decided, oh, yeah, I guess I, I, I'm I going to just go ahead and do it anyway. Well, granted, Trump didn't say that he couldn't do anything over and over again like Obama did, but his actions are pretty much identical. The exact same thing. Congress couldn't reach a decision, they were in stalemate, and so Trump said, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, the president does not have the power to do that. In fact, in a lot of ways, this one is worse because as horrible as it was for the President Trump to just decide that there are certain laws that even though they are on the books, I, as the president, am just not going to enforce, you couldn't even really make a prosecutorial discretion with this one because it has to do with spending money. It wasn't as though the... Payments were going to continue on that $600 trajectory, and Trump said, okay, we're going to lower it to $400. That's not what happened here. What happened is President Trump decided to spend money to put into place the $400 unemployment benefit which means that he has not only subverted the Constitution in going around Congress and completely ignored the separation of powers that is the hallmark of our constitutional republic, but more importantly, he also defied uh, and and violated Article 1, Section 7, which states that all bills for raising revenue must originate in the House of Representatives. If it has to do with taxation or it has to do with spending— It's got to start in the House. That is the rule that the Constitution puts in place. And President Trump isn't just, you know, the Senate trying to take over that. He's from a completely different branch of the federal government deciding, nope, I can spend money. I can just write something down and the federal government has to spend money on what I told them to. No, that's not how this works, Mr. President. You do not have the power to do that. You are not a king that has the ability to go around parliament and do whatever the heck you want. You're not a dictator. It's hilarious to me because the left has been calling Trump a fascist and a dictator since literally before he even took the oath of office. And this is by far the closest thing to being a dictator that he has ever done. And really, there's not a lot of complaints from the left, at least not ones that I've seen you know, in earnest. There's been some criticisms and talking about how he's going around Congress here and there, but uh, I haven't seen the usual vitriol that the left has for Trump, despite this being by far the closest thing to some kind of dictatorial action that President Trump has ever taken. It also violates the 10th Amendment, but honestly, me saying this is old hat by by now, uh, virtually everything the federal government does, unfortunately, now violates the 10th Amendment, so I'm not even going to go into detail on that one. And... The biggest problem, though, is the separation of powers thing, because Article 2 grants the president absolutely no authority whatsoever to write a law and then to enforce it. There would be no reason for Congress to exist if that were the case. If Congress is in deadlock and the president can just decide, oh, well, I'm going to do it myself, well, then we don't have any reason to have a Congress. The president can just run the country by himself. He can make laws and then he can be in charge of enforcing those laws. That's not a good precedent to set. And granted, it was originally President Obama that did set that precedent, but that doesn't make it okay for your guy to do it just when he's doing something that you like. I have my issues with some of the things this executive order contains, but whether I did or didn't, how it happens does matter. I love the payroll tax holiday. I'm a huge fan of that. Doesn't matter if it was just the payroll tax holiday and you remove the other two aspects of this thing, it's still unconstitutional. It's still wrong for the president to violate his oath of office to do something like this. It's not right. And it just, it doesn't surprise me at this point, but I get so incredibly frustrated with people that I know for a fact because I was around when this happened uh, because I'm, I'm more than, well, when would that have been? Uh, eight, not even eight years ago. Uh, I was around when DACA was actually signed into law and these same people were just absolutely livid and furious and talking about a constitutional crisis that we're in with President Obama just ignoring the Constitution and acting on his own. And all of that was 100% true. It's true here as well. You can't have one standard for Trump and one standard for Obama that it's bad when Obama does it, but it's good when Trump does it because the end result is something you like. That's not how this works. I was thinking about this last night, and I actually did so while I was going through the Book of Jeremiah because of something that I read in there. And it just, I don't know why, but it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. And it's something that I've always known, but I think that this scenario really proves how true it is. If, if you, if your principles do not ever cause you to criticize somebody that you like or to do something that makes you uncomfortable, or to take a stand that, frankly, you'd rather not take, then what you have are not principles. They are a set of personal preferences, and that's not the same thing. A principled person will sometimes have to stick up for somebody that they don't like. A principled person is sometimes going to have to take stances that they know their friends and neighbors and people that generally agree with them, that they're not going to like it either. But that's what it means to be a consistent, principled person. It's not easy. Frankly, it's a pain in the butt most of the time. But it is the right thing to do. Because then, when somebody from the other side sees that, later on, when you have a complaint about somebody on your side or on their side, they actually take it seriously. Protect your credibility. That's really the lesson that I think we can take away from this. Trump actually said the other day, and I mean, it it infuriates it infuriates me. But he's not wrong. This is what Trump said in reaction to this, saying, "If we get sued, it's from somebody that doesn't want people to get money, and that's going to be a very that's not going to be a very popular thing." You know what? That statement could have come right out of President Obama's mouth ma- if I hadn't done the goofy Trump voice. If, if I had told you that that was President Obama, like if I had read it like this, uh, if, if we get two, it's from somebody that doesn't want people to get money. And that's not going to be a very popular thing. Does anybody doubt that that's something that President Obama would have said if the shoe were on the other foot? I mean, that sounds like a Democrat thing. That basically they want to buy an election by giving out free crap and hoping that those people vote for them. That's like winning an election when you're a Democrat 101. And here's the thing you ain't going to out Santa Claus the Democrats. It's not going to happen. Republicans cannot win elections by promising more things than the Democrats. We've tried it, it fails. It always fails. Republicans just aren't good at being Democrats. Now, granted, they've gotten an awful lot of practice at it, but when it, comes to, when it becomes a contest of which party can promise me more free crap, the Democrats always win. You can't win that game. And this is not going to be good for President Trump. Now, he's probably right that because there's a, a, a pretty big majority of the of American populace, both on the left and, unfortunately, some in the center and the right, that are going to look at that and go, well, you know, it would be super unpopular to take a stance against this, so I'm just going to ignore it. And I think that's the reason you haven't seen a larger outcry from people on the left about this. Uh, I think that that really is the reason that Trump's basically saying, well, yeah, you can challenge us in court if you want to, but that's going to be super unpopular for you. Yeah, he's probably right about that. He's probably not going to get much pushback from the right or the left because the right doesn't want to go up against Trump. I mean, Uh, Look at Jeff Sessions. He never went up against Trump, but it was perceived as though he did, and it caused him to lose a race in a state where he has been wildly popular for 30 years. And so there's nobody on the right that wants to stand against Trump on this. And there's not a whole lot of people on the left that want to stand against Trump because every time the government expands, even when it's a Republican that does it, even when the government gives out free crap, That is a win for the Democrats. Donald Trump is trying so hard to lose this election. I mean, it is unconscionable, but that's where we are right now. And what's sad is the Trump worshipers are going to praise him no matter what he did. He could literally come out with the party platform of President Obama tomorrow, and there is a certain subsection of his base. And I don't think that it's most people that vote Republican. I'm thinking this is maybe 15 to 20% of the American population, if that. That may be actually overstating it a little bit. But uh, it's it's kind of what President Trump was articulating early in the primaries where he said, I could just shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and I wouldn't lose a single vote. That's the base that he was talking about. That there are people that just absolutely worship at the man's feet and that is not healthy. That basically, if Trump does it, it must be okay. They just assume that he's always right that is incredibly dangerous for any person. I mean, it's dangerous for a politician in general. That, that's, a, that's a very dumb thing to think of a politician as some kind of savior or, something, or somebody that always does everything right. But from a spiritual standpoint, it's incredibly poisonous to a human soul to put that, that much emphasis and that much glory on one person. Stacking somebody on a pedestal like that is something that only God should be on. And President Trump, despite, a unfortunately, a large number, I wouldn't say a majority by any means, but like I said, that 15 to 20%, putting President Trump in a place where only God should be is incredibly unhealthy to your soul. And it would be so with any other human being putting in that place. There were people that did it when President Obama was in office that still do, actually. I know that. I understand that. I'm not saying that he is unique in that sense. But don't put people on pedestals that they shouldn't be. And I know that was a a long ways around uh, Tuberville and and his statements, but thought it was worthwhile. So uh, one other piece of local news that I know is on everybody's mind, and we got to talk about it because, I mean, come on, we just got done with nominating two, and the odds of him not winning are basically nothing. So, uh, barring some kind of weird freak accident, we have a former head football coach that is going to be our state senator. So it's appropriate that we've got to cover the big college football news that's going on right now. So now Nick Saban, Mac Jones, and Bo Nix have all, all spoken out on playing this season. We'll get to their comments in a, uh, a segment. Man, I can't talk tonight. In a second, we'll get to them. But just to set the stage for those of you who don't know, The Big Ten and the Pac-12 have already canceled their season, so no football this fall for the Big Ten and the Pac-12. And the country collectively went, who's the Pac-12? So that's about how that went. The Big Ten, at least people know them, but I mean, their season getting canceled, is that really a big deal? I don't know. The SEC, which actually, you know, has a following. Um, they have moved to a 10-game series. So th- th- their season is just going to be 10 games and it's going to be conference only. So a whole bunch of teams have picked up a couple of extra conference games, which, by the way, man, got to fill up for Mizzou and, and uh, Arkansas. They got the raw end of that deal if you've been paying attention to their schedule, getting uh, LSU and Alabama and Georgia. Ah, I just... My heart goes right out to him, But anyway, that's the status of things right now. But the absurdity has already begun. The The backlash to this has already started. Uh, you have the the Karens in the state and, and across the country going, why is football more important than lives? So we're going to debunk all of that. And Coach Saban and uh, the two quarterbacks of Auburn and Alabama actually kind of addressed that. There was an AL.com article that, sort of did a, a similar shtick with high school football. We actually already did a segment on that. You can go back and watch it. That they were making this weird false dichotomy that basically we have to choose between having football or just killing every single high school student in Alabama. That's basically the way that this was set up. As ridiculous as that is, that's how they set it up with a virus that for people under the age of twenty-five has a zero point zero zero three three percent chance of actually killing you after you get the virus not like you know for everyone only for people that actually do get infected with the virus does it have a mortality rate that high and they were still like well you just don't care about kids and want them to die Uh, that level of ridiculous has already been out there but let's get to the actual quotes by coach nick saban the most powerful man in the state of alabama um I can't... <clears throat> it's hard. I, don't, I almost don't want to read it. As an Auburn fan, do you guys have any idea how hard it is for me to agree with Nick Saban? I mean, it's hurting. It's, it's going to hurt coming out. But here's what Coach Nick Saban had to say. This is from an interview yesterday with ESPN. He says, I want to play... Uh, But I want to play for the player's sake, the value that they can create for themselves. I know I'll be criticized, no matter what I say, that I don't care about player safety. Look, players are a lot safer with us than they are running around home. We have around a 2% positive ratio on our team since the 4th of July. It's a lot higher than that in society. We act like these guys can't get it unless they play football. They can get it anywhere whether they're in a bar or just hanging out. Coach Nick Saban, just throwing down a truth bomb. And remember, Coach Saban is not exactly a Trump supporter or somebody that, is, uh, that you would see at the get-back-to-work Alabama rallies, things like that. I mean, the, the man was in favor of Hillary Clinton. Now, he doesn't speak a lot about politics. I don't think that he's uber-political anyway, but when he does talk politics on those rare occasions, he tends to trend toward the Democrat side. But he's looking at his team, he's looking at the numbers, and he's saying it doesn't make any sense for them to say we can't have football because of this thing. They're safer here with me than they are out there in the world. We've got a 2% positivity rating here on our team and have since the 4th of July, and it's way bigger out there in the general public, and he's right. These are young men that are probably not being super cautious about it, and frankly, based on the stats and the likelihood of them dying from this thing, I don't blame them being pretty darn cavalier about it. I mean, I'm not endorsing reckless behavior. I think they should do some social distancing, wash their hands, wear a mask if they're going to be inside with a lot of people where there's a high risk. I would be in favor of those things. But I also do have to acknowledge that they're college students and probably not doing a lot of that stuff. So are they safer there at the university playing football where they can be watched, monitored? Think about what is being done here for these guys. I've been at Auburn. I've known football players. I have fraternity brothers that are involved with the football program. A couple that played football there. I'm not saying that I know the ins and outs in every aspect of it, but I'm telling you because this is such a big industry and it is such a big money maker for the university, regardless of whether you think that's the right motivation or not, these guys get treated with kid gloves. And they do provide a valuable service that really helps the university. So I get it. I'm, I'm not here to criticize or to, you know, condone all of that. I'm just saying it is the way it is. I mean, when it comes to tutoring, I've, I've had classes with Auburn football players. They typically only show up for the exams. They ain't showing up for the classes. And you may say, well, it's because they're, they, you know, the professors are just giving them a pass. No, they're not. These guys have private tutors. They go over the class stuff. It's almost like homeschooling. Like, they have private tutors for the team. They go through this stuff. They do get their education, um, some with better grades than others, I'm sure. But the point is, they, they do get the material. They just, it's all self-contained. They eat lunch in their own private dining room. They have their own private dorms. These guys live in as much of a bubble where everything is protected and they're only interacting with one another as anybody can. Now, you know, granted, when they hang out, they do hang out with non-football players and non-athletes, and, and they go around campus on occasion. But I'm just saying that do you think they're safer there? Or do you think they're safer just doing whatever they want? Coach Saban has a really good point. Gosh, it pains me to say that. but (laughs) I know, it's it's just because I'm such an Auburn guy. But Coach Saban is bringing up a completely legitimate point, which is they're way safer here. Why is everybody acting like the second that they step out on a football field in pads, they're going to get the virus and die? That's simply not rational. They're far safer doing that than they would be just at home wherever they are. Probably hanging out with people as opposed to playing football and, and doing, you know, being in that self-contained environment. <sighs> so Coach Saban goes on to say, We also test anybody that has symptoms and have an open testing site where they can go get tested as many times as they want or uh, anytime they feel like they need to. But our guys aren't going to catch the virus on the football field. They're going to catch it on campus. The argument then should probably be: We shouldn't be having school. That's the argument. Why is uh, why is it we shouldn't be playing football? Why has that become the argument? Thank you, Coach Saban. Thank you for asking that question. Now I know that the uh, the automatic rebuttal to this: the people that are going to be reading this, that are you know peddling the panic porn, are going to go, Oh my gosh. Coach Nick Saban is saying, Why are we having, why are we doing this? And, or why are we not having football and having school? We should be doing football and not having school. That's not what he said. That's taking what he said completely out of context. He is saying that football is less risky than opening up the university to classes, which is correct for a number of reasons. First of all, the majority of classes are not self contained. You've got one student having a class with 29 other students, who then goes into a room with 29 completely different students. That's not a self-contained environment. That's completely different than football, where they do everything together, which would make it inherently more risky. And they're also moving around. It's a larger place to be on campus, so you're you're moving from building to building. Uh, You're sitting still. Not getting exercise, not getting any sun for an hour and a half every class, uh, then going to, you know, like a library. I mean, the risk factor is far larger for school. And I'm not advocating for the closing for schools, and neither is Nick Saban. He's just saying that comparatively, that is a far riskier thing for the spread of the virus than football is. And he's 100% correct on that, especially when you consider all the things that he just said about they can get a test anytime they want to. If they feel even just a little bit off, we're going to test them before they step on the football field. We'll test them. The only equivalent to that, if you were going to do school this way, is to basically scan temperatures every time somebody moves from one room to the next on a college campus, which would be impossible because it's not one homogenous group staying together all the time. With football, the monitoring is far superior and they're not interacting with a whole bunch of different groups all the time. And so, yeah, football is safer. He's not saying that football is more valuable than school. That is not a statement that Coach Saban is making. He is merely saying that it is lower risk. I mean, that would be like saying, well, you know, getting groceries when it comes to this virus is probably significantly less risky than hugging your grandmother because, you know, as an older person, she's more likely to get sick from it and more likely to be a transmitter of it based on recent data. Well, are you saying that getting groceries is more important than hugging your grandmother? Why do you hate grandparents? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that it's lower risk. Now, I don't know if, you know, I haven't done the math on that. I don't know if it's actually lower risk. I'm just giving a hypothetical example. He's not making a value statement on the value of school versus the value of football. He is merely suggesting that the risks are different. And if risk is the only thing that we're supposed to be looking at, which is sort of the narrative that is pushing this let's not have football this season kind of mentality, which is what Coach Saban is speaking to, then it makes no sense to have classes and not football. So that becomes the question, why? Why is it that they would be opting to, and and basically it's a foregone conclusion, that we are going to have classes which are higher risk, not going to have football which is lower risk? Now, there's a myriad of different reasons for that being the case. There's a lot of different people with a lot of different motives. I understand that. But there is a class of people, I don't know how big a portion of it it is, there is a group of people that are pushing against there being football and for there being classes that are doing so because the last thing that they want is to stop the communist factory. Which, let's be honest, is what the vast majority of our universities are at this point. They are communist indoctrination camps. I mean, we've seen just recently some of that, even at Auburn University, my own alma mater, with Dr. Jesse Goldberg, which actually we're going to get to here in a second. But I mean, these things churn out communist thinking. That's essentially what they are. They're they're kind of like voluntary, very expensive gulags to take your normal high school graduate and turn them into a Marxist in many cases. Not all cases, but in many cases, and, and that's been true all the way back to when Woodrow Wilson was at Princeton and tried to overhaul the university system, trying to make them, according to his own words, uh, trying to make them as unlike their parents as possible, and to turn them into collectivist and Marxist. This has been true for for many, many decades. So, because of that, if if you understand that background, wouldn't it make sense for at least some people to be like, well? football we don't like. See, that, you know, conveys a sense of normalcy and that could theoretically make people believe that we don't need all these controls and all, all of this government regulation. And so we really want the perception of needing government to step in and save them from the big bad coronavirus to be there. But we would also really hate for our communist indoctrination camps to shut down because then people might, you know, actually think for themselves and we can't have that. I mean, obviously they wouldn't articulate it that way, but that is the thinking of at least some of the people on university campuses. And by the way, I gotta hand it to—again, it pains me to—it t- to <laughs> pains me to talk up people at Alabama because I'm an Auburn fan and I'm such a homer when it comes to that. But I, I have to give credit where credit is due. Mac Jones tweeted this out earlier today, and I know that the text is is hard to see there, but I'll read it for you. Uh, Mac Jones tweeted. When we committed to play for the University of Alabama and the SEC, we trusted the process, and we still do. We believe the safest place for us is to be together playing football as a team at the University of Alabama. Trust us and let us play. I trust the process, Coach Saban and the University of Alabama. I believe playing the proposed modified season is the correct decision. Our program has implemented numerous safety protocols, in concurrence with our medical staff, CDC guidelines, and the NCAA, including, but not limited to, testing to help ensure the safety and well-being of our coaches, staff, teammates, and university. In making this decision, I do not mean to diminish the pain of the pandemic that, is caused, that it has caused everyone. Nevertheless, I am committed to playing football this season, as are the majority of my teammates, praying for a better tomorrow. And it's really sad that quarterback Mac Jones even felt the need to say, look, I'm not diminishing the pain of people with the pandemic, because the second you say anything that is somewhat divergent from we need to stay shut down for 18 months until they come up with a vaccine, the second that you say anything that is slightly more open to reopening the country than that, you're automatically accused accused of saying that the virus is a hoax, that it's not real, that you're not taking it seriously. Unfortunately, Mac Jones realizes that and is saying, look, I'm not saying that people aren't hurt by this. I'm not saying that people haven't died from this, which of course is a horrible tragedy, but it's low risk. We're safe. We've taken measures. We are taking it seriously. And we believe that we are safer doing it this way than we would any other way. And that's accurate. That is rooted in reality and also the other quarterback from the other side of the state, my own alma mater, Bo Nix, basically tweeted something that was very similar in sentiment. This was his tweet from earlier, quarterback Bo Nix. You can see there he says, thanks to the support of the entire Auburn administration, we are safer playing uh, playing a football season. We have worked our entire lives to get where we are now don't let it go to waste, we need football, listen to the players, hashtag, we want to play. See, that's something else that I think we constantly forget in this debate. These guys are adults. Yeah, we think of them as kids from time to time, maybe I don't as much, because I graduated seven years ago, so I'm definitely not a college student or college age anymore, but like, I can, I can, I'm around college kids all the time, and I kind of think of myself in that vein, And so I don't think of them as kids maybe as much as the average person. But, you know, the average person, a 21, 22-year-old is a kid. And I get that. I'm not saying that's necessarily a, a, a bad thing. But ultimately, they are of the age of majority. They are adults. They have their own agency. They're allowed to look at the risk and make their own decisions. And so... The debate was a little bit different when I was doing this discussion when it was, you know, regarding high school students because at that point, they're not of the age of majority. Now, their parents are, and the parents are, ought to be making those decisions as to what's best for their kid. But when it comes to these guys, you can't even use that as a fallback argument. They're adults. They can make their own choices. And they've looked at everything and said, you know what? We're actually safer playing football than we would be not playing football. So why don't we play football? It doesn't make any sense to cancel it and lose the season when we're safer doing that than we would be doing anything else anyway. And they're right. Why sacrifice it when you don't need to? Especially when it actually keeps you safer than doing it the other way. I mean, that, that's a logical conclusion to come to at that point. And so, with all of that being said, I think that, you know, Bo Nix is really illustrating that, in his tweet really personifies that, is because he's saying, we believe in the process— Auburn's been over backwards to make this happen. We want to play. And, and one thing that he hinted on there uh, that you may have missed but is really important, you have to remember, even if you get to be a... a let, let's say they give you an extra year of eligibility for the season being canceled. Okay, that's good. I'm glad they're doing that. You still don't get that year back. I mean, you may get to play at the college level longer. Sure. You really want to put your life on hold for a whole nother year because of this thing? Especially when it was done for no good reason, where it wasn't keeping you safer? Why? You don't get those years back. And especially in an industry like this with athletics, for the ones that are going to go on to the NFL, well, that's going to put them off another year. And youth is everything in this sport. I mean, once you get past a certain age, unless you're a quarterback or a, you know, a certain other position, you're done. And you're asking these guys to sacrifice a whole year of that, even though they would be safer playing the sport they love as opposed to not doing so? It's no wonder they're pushing back on this stuff. But really, what this should do, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, this should raise two big questions. First of all, where do you think these guys are safer? I've already gone over a lot of this. But the odds of death are so incredibly low for somebody under the age of 25, they literally do not register as a cause of death. Now, obviously, they cause, they're a cause of death on an individual level. Like The cause of death could be COVID-19. But in the state of Alabama, out of all the people that we've had, the number of people under the age of 25 that have died from this thing is six. It's an infinitesimally small amount. It doesn't even come close to being 1%. Not even close to 1% of the deaths in the state of Alabama came from people under the age of 25. And remember, this is a state with 4.88 million people. Six deaths. And that's for everybody under the age of 25. Whether you've got pre-existing conditions, like me, or not, I'm not under the age of 25, but I do have pre-existing conditions. Regardless, we were going over the odds the other day. The the, the odds of death are 0.0033% for anybody under the age of 25. To put that into context, the odds of death for anyone under the age of 25 in the state of Alabama of dying from just run-of-the-mill influenza, the seasonal flu, 0.0042%. They are 21 times more likely, or not, sorry, not 21 times, 21% more likely to die from the seasonal flu than coronavirus. Now you take somebody that's 75, coronavirus is significantly more likely to kill them. Not saying that it's not, not saying you don't take it seriously, but for somebody that is under the age of 25, if we cannot have a football season with the coronavirus going on, There is no reason for us to ever have a football season ever again, because the flu is significantly more likely to kill these athletes. And when does football season take place? Oh, right. Flu season. So if you can't have it this season, there is no reason to ever have a college football season ever again, because it's just darn too risky. And here's another thing when it comes to risk, because like I said, these guys are adults. They can make their own decisions. What do you think is more likely to be hazardous to a young man's health? The coronavirus, which has a death rate that is so low, it literally doesn't even register on the macro level stats as a cause of death because it's so infinitesimally small, it doesn't even meet the qualifications to be classified that way. Or getting hit by a 350-pound defensive lineman. Honestly, which one is more ha- which one is more likely to cause some kind of serious injury or some kind of permanent damage? I would think it would be that one. But we're okay with that because they know this going into it, it's baked into the cake, and we do everything we can to keep them as safe as possible. That's why we have pads, that's why we have refs, that's why we have the targeting role, which I don't even necessarily agree with all the time. I think they're a little too overzealous on that. But nonetheless, we have all those things in place because, yes, we recognize that they're risk, we're going to try to mitigate the risk as much as possible, but they still get to play. That's ultimately the goal here, and it should be. And another thing, too, this is the second big question, why isn't this looked at as being noble? Because the reaction so far has been, oh, well, you just hate old people and want them to die because you want to watch football. Well, what about the old people that football means so much to? I mean, let's take a guy that, you know, is at high risk for the coronavirus. He's got one or two pre-existing conditions he's having to hold up in his house with nothing to do. Why would we take football away from him, especially when these guys are willing to go out there and to put forth that effort And it brings a smile to people's faces. Like, even if the risk were higher, wouldn't we be like, man, look at that, they're risking that all to, you know, do something that really means something to other people. See, the guys that are actually at risk could very well be harmed by not having football. I'm not saying in a, like a, you know, it's going to cause them to die or anything like that. But I'm just saying that would be something that the state could really look at it like, hey, there are these guys out here that are at low risk and they're going to do us a solid by going out there and and helping out and, and doing this thing that just, you know, helps lift the spirits of everybody else that's dealing with this thing. Why don't we consider that angle of it? I don't understand that either. And it really does break my heart, but what about the players' families? You know, they're not going to get that year back either. I mean, what do you say to the guy that even though he's actually safer statistically playing football than he would be not playing football like Coach Saban and and like Mac Jones and Bo Nix have all brought up, that you tell him that his grandma that may not last until next football season, that she just can't see her boy play football anymore? Like, you're not considering the other side of the ledger on this thing, and that's one of the things that really drives me nuts. And again, that's the time that's not going to get back. But here's the thing. Even considering all of those things, even considering all of those factors, there's still people that are making the case that you're putting the players' lives at risk. Now, I'm not a doctor. I know that sometimes, you know, just being as brilliant as I am, that confuses people, but I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just a guy that reads stats on the internet and then talks to you about them. But I want to go to somebody that is. This is a Dr. Michael J. Ackerman. Now, uh, we'll go over his uh, his resume in a second, but suffice it to say that he is a medical doctor that knows a little bit something about this, because the the argument now is, okay, well, yeah, they're very unlikely to die— but there may be some kind of permanent damage to their cardiovascular system or to their lungs that are caused by this. And this is largely supported by a recent study that was done uh, that that now, granted, it was a small sample, but you know, everything's kind of a small sample right now, just because that's how it works. This is a brand new virus. We're we're sort of getting our feet wet trying to figure out all of this stuff. So um, that being said. Uh, This is a guy who is a doctor that studies this kind of thing and and has seen this particular study, and this was his reaction to it. This is, uh, again, Dr. Michael J. Ackerman. So this is Dr. Ackerman, and he's saying, if medical experts for the Pac-10 and Big Ten college football conferences are using the very good JMA cardio paper on cardiac MRI findings in COVID-19 patients as compelling for cancellation... That is a big foul. The data does not support this at all. Hashtag we want to play. Hashtag refuse to fear. Now, the study that he's referring to suggested that there is some lasting damage in the short term. Now, there could be long-term damage, but unfortunately, we don't know that yet because the thing's only been around for a little less than a year. And because it's only been around then, we don't really have COVID patients to research to see if there is long-term damage. They're saying that there is the potential for some long-term damage in a handful of patients. But you have to keep in mind that that damage is also largely dependent on, like the coronavirus itself and the severity of it, the age of the person. And that is what is being alluded to by Dr. Ackerman here. Now, if you're wondering, okay, who is this guy? Is he really qualified to talk about this? Is he, is he contradicting the findings of the study? No, he says it's a very good study. He's not contra... In fact, he's going along with the results of the study, saying that these guys are at low risk. He's saying he's looking at the study and saying to suggest that the football players are at large risk of lasting damage to their cardiovascular systems because of this is just a bad read. The data doesn't support that conclusion. Now, who is Dr. Ackerman? He's a doctor of cardiac. He's a genetic. uh, What's the title? This is why I need to include this in my notes. Um, He is a genetic cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking the Mayo Clinic. What are they? They're like doctors for condiments or something that's a hospital of some renown. It's not just some podunk little hospital out there. The Mayo Clinic is the place they send you when the other hospitals are like, I don't know what's wrong with you. I got no idea. You need to go over there to the Mayo Clinic because they can figure it out. We're not qualified to do that. If this guy isn't qualified to speak on the results of how this thing affects the heart, there is nobody that is qualified. I mean, we all know that. We've all heard of the Mayo Clinic. Somebody that's never had a, a health problem in their life knows the Mayo Clinic. That is the, the the cream of the crop. That's where the people that are the elite hope that they get to someday. And this guy is a specialist in genetic cardiology at Mayo? And he's saying, nope, that's a bad read. The study's good. The data's good. I like the data. The data does not support the conclusion that football players are at significant risk of lasting heart damage because of this thing. Well, I'm sorry, if that guy and his opinion when when everybody's tweeting hashtag listen to the experts, well, this guy is an expert that experts go to. Why don't we listen to what he's saying on this? The idea that we can't have football because of this thing is just ridiculous. Look, I think the main reason that a lot of people are going after this, there are some people that are genuinely concerned. Don't get me wrong. There's an awful lot of people that have political motivations for this and a staple of normalcy in, 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 in America, but especially in the state of Alabama. Around this time of year, what would normally be happening? Everybody's concerned about getting back to school and everybody's getting ready for college football season. There's an awful lot of people that don't want that to happen. They don't want a return to normalcy. Just like the, uh, what is he, the, the minority whip, or sorry, the majority whip, yeah, was the majority whip. The majority whip of the Democrat Party saying that this is a great opportunity to completely rehaul the system. This is a great opportunity to remake America in the way that we want it to be. There's a whole lot of people that would see college football in a return to normalcy as a obstacle to that. It would shut down their their little communist factories there and unfortunately uh, the vast majority of the universities out there. There's a twinge of that at Auburn. I don't really know if that's there at Alabama. It's certainly not there in the private college system for the most part even though there's some of it out there especially in the Ivy League as well. But the thing is that is the primary function at least in the eyes of a lot of people of the university system and they don't want that shut down but they sure as heck want college football shut down because then that might give people the sense that things are returning back to the normal that everything's okay and when people aren't panicked it's a lot harder to get them to do what you want them to do all right well i've been going for a while now i gotta take a break we'll be back in just a minute on tactics uh, this is a news radio 1440 podcast that was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> and for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, it's actually going to be Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I thought that him picking, if I mean, just in case you haven't heard, Senator Kamala Harris was an incredibly bad move on Biden's part. There's a couple of reasons, but first and foremost among them it's just such an odd fit for him. So I'm going to characterize this in a couple of different ways because there's a couple of reasons why she's a really, really bad pick for him. I think one of the worst picks he could have made, actually. But it's not just because, and I want to say this, most of this segment is going to be centered around the, the political fallout and the political likelihood of him winning the election. Obviously, Kamala Harris is awful. If anything, the Brett Kavanaugh hearing should have taught us that right away. Like any any fair-minded human being that knew the situation, knew the context, and watched that, would tell Senator Kamala Harris pretty horrible human being. But I'm taking all of that away for just a second. I'm not even focusing on her as a person. I'm focusing on her as a person that, or as a, a vice presidential pick. So sheerly looking at politics, thinking about it, if I were a person wanting Joe Biden to win, why she is a terrible pick. First of all, it's just a bad matchup for him. I would have really thought that Susan Rice would have been his pick, honestly. I figured it was going to be either her or Kamala Harris because there has been such a big deal about the whole I have to pick a woman of color thing. And and frankly After he went on that interview and said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Like that pretty much sealed the deal that he was not going to be able to pick a white person as his running mate. That was such a foot in mouth moment when it came to race. Basically, his only option at that point was to make a racially motivated pick. So congratulations, Kamala Harris. You are now officially the affirmative action vice president. Um, Now. Maybe he would have picked Kamala Harris, even if that hadn't happened. Maybe he would have picked Kamala Harris, even if she were a white person, but I rather doubt it. I'm pretty sure uh, most political commentators, if they were being completely honest, look at how all of this played out. Look at the context and how Joe Biden basically felt pressured that I have to pick a, a, a woman that is black. That Kamala Harris just happened to be one of the only people around that fit the bill. I would have really thought that Susan Rice was going to be it because since he kind of wants to ride Obama's coattails and he wants everybody to see him being in office as a return to normalcy, which, you know, I wouldn't really think of Obama as a return to normalcy. But there are a lot of people that would that if I were advising Joe Biden, I would say go with Susan Rice. Or heck, even somebody like Valerie Jarrett. Now, she's more of a behind-the-scenes person, so I don't know if she would make a a great vice presidential candidate, but what I'm saying is Kamala Harris just seems like a bad fit for Joe Biden on those grounds. And somebody that was actually directly involved with the Obama administration just seems like a more logical pick if that's going to be his pitch to America. And this is actually where Oddly enough, Joe Biden basically being a walking corpse comes in handy because since the guy's basically got one foot in the grave, here's where Joe Biden needs to, to play. Basically, his message needs to be, I'm just going to do normal things and I'm going to get a return to normalcy. Everything's going to be back the way it was. And even though the coronavirus has nothing to do Uh, With with Trump or Biden in the sense that, you know, it's just a a thing that happened. It's not like a economic catastrophe that was caused by the government or something like that, that it's just sort of a happenstance. I mean, obviously, the coronavirus response is a government thing, but the coronavirus itself isn't. So pretty much no matter what anybody did a call to a return to normalcy is going to be a very comforting, very effective message in this particular election cycle just because of the circumstances surrounding it. And so because of that, Joe Biden is wise to sort of play himself off as this empty vessel or this doddering old guy that's not going to do a lot of radical stuff, that's, that's not really going to push super hard for you know far leftist causes, But by picking somebody that is as radical as Kamala Harris as somebody that was not involved in the Obama administration that would be seen as somebody that shakes it up. That leaves Trump a line of attack. You see, so much, so much of politics is playing defense. I know there's the old adage of if you're if you're on the defensive, then you're losing when it comes to politics. And when you're talking about on a debate stage, that's 100 percent true. If you're ever having to go forth with the media and having to explain yourself and defending something, you're definitely losing. But preemptive defense is actually what politics is all about. Setting yourself up on the high ground to where it's virtually impossible for someone to attack you, at least in a legitimate or a severely damaging way. You're trying to be Obi-Wan Kenobi on Mustafar. Uh, you know, You're trying to take that high ground to where it doesn't matter how skilled your opponent is, They're not going to be able to beat you if you have the high ground. That's basically what most of politics is. And Joe Biden, frankly, had that because even though I think that, you know, just as as terms of effectiveness and what has actually happened, Trump would make a much better president than Joe Biden, Um, even though I think that is the case, what you run into here is that now there is an opening because Joe Biden could run as the, I'm just going to return everything to normal and everything's going to be the way that it was. And we're going to return to the the good old days before. Um, that's just the way that it's going to be. It's not going to be the president tweeting at 3 AM, you know, from inside the white house and, and doing all these inflammatory things. That was Joe Biden's pitch. Joe Biden being as boring as humanly possible, which, I mean, let's be honest, Joe Biden is. Uh, Joe Biden being as boring as humanly possible was a huge asset to him. Now the problem is, Joe Biden, who is fading fast on the mental capacity stage and who's basically got one foot in the grave at this point, now he has to contend with the line of attack of Kamala Harris being a far-left radical who could very well take his place. I mean, over 50% of Democrats in a recent poll. I think it was like 56, 57. So almost 60% of Democrats do not believe that Joe Biden can complete his first term, which means that an awful lot of them are going to be looking, and I'm sure that that's actually significantly higher for moderates and Republicans. Um, they're going to be looking at whoever his VP is as basically being somebody that they have to think, well, you know, at least for a few years on this, they're going to be the president. So if that is the case, then they have got to do, they've got to pick somebody that is going to be able to to display a unified front. And Kamala Harris, I just don't think can do that. She's seen as too much of a radical herself. And a lot of people are going to say, well, it will sure up the black vote. Look, I don't know that anything Joe Biden was going to do was going to change his perception with black voters anyway. Here's the thing. Black voters tend to not be all that radical. And so Kamala Harris being an uber radical, you you could have picked somebody that fits that demographic that isn't nearly as radical. And that probably would have done a much better job at solidifying the, uh, the minority vote as it were. Um, And then another thing that is odd, and this is the reason why I find this particular pick of a VP candidate so odd, is remember that in the primaries, Kamala Harris had one big moment, one big claim to fame, and it was basically saying that Joe Biden has some issues when it comes to race. That was the only thing that people, unless you were somebody that's a political junkie like me, you're somebody that was super tuned in or somebody that was specifically supporting Kamala Harris. The only part of that uh, primary that anybody remembers of Kamala Harris is this clip right here.
1: I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, It cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights.
0: Okay. I mean, so you can see there, there's a lot of tension, basically Kamala Harris saying because Joe Biden was in favor of busing that he has some, some racial baggage, I guess you could say there. And also because he advocated for two members of the Senate that basically made their entire careers off of segregation of schools. I mean, let's also remember Joe Biden, a close friend of Robert Byrd, who was an actual grand wizard in the Klan. So she's not wrong on that. By the way, I do find it also pretty hilarious that now the two candidates at the top of the ticket for the Democrat Party, which is supposed to be the party of inclusiveness, is an old white dude, and a person that put an awful lot of black people in jail for nonviolent crimes and is also the progeny of a slave owner. Now, I personally don't have a problem with somebody having someone in their background that is not perfect, because I don't believe that sins transfer generations. That's a that's an anti biblical idea. The sins of the father should not be counted against the sins of the son. That's in Ezekiel. But the left seems to have that issue. And I find it interesting that the party of inclusivity now has somebody that was California's top cop that put a whole lot of people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses that put a whole lot of people of color in, in those prison cells and also is the great, 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 great granddaughter of a slave owner that that's the person they want to go with as their VP pick. Now, again, I, I don't hold that against them, but it just seems like an odd choice. If anybody, Kamala Harris had by far the most baggage out of all of the women of color candidates that Joe Biden could have selected from. But basically, what that means is that Trump's path to victory is through Harris. Because now, it's very hard to hit hit Joe Biden for a number of reasons. First of all, um, he's had so many different political stances over the years that it's kind of hard to pin him down on any ideological core. And so because of that, he's actually a lot harder to hit. It's like trying to punch a, 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 you know, a. it's like like trying to punch water or something. Like you you can't really do a lot of damage because it's so flimsy or whatever. And then the other part of that is that Joe Biden basically being an empty vessel and a walking corpse actually really worked in his favor when he's trying to push a return-to-normalcy kind of message. See, now all he has to do is make the case, which many Democrats, not just Republicans, believe, that Joe Biden is not going to be able to finish his first term. Now all he has to do is attack the VP. See, now all he can say is, you don't vote for Joe Biden because then you get President Kamala Harris, and that's not good. Um, so that's really the only case that he has to make. And I think that that's really his path to victory. That's what Donald Trump can do. And now Joe Biden has unfortunately left him a line of attack open. So here's the deal. Uh, I actually have somewhere that I got to be. So I don't have time for a chaplain's report. I do apologize for that. We'll do one and, and we'll pick up the one that I had planned for today on Thursday. I do apologize for that. I just ran out of time and I'm sorry Uh, So, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and end the show here today, right now. I appreciate it. I appreciate y'all being with me. Feel free to comment, like, and subscribe, and we will see you later in the meantime. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.